Okay. Well, let's, yeah. So let's flip the tables now. Let's have you take the lead in explaining the second book, which treats similar ground, similar historical territory, just in a very, uh, a very different way. Um, and which, which is one of the things that makes history fun. So the next book we're talking about is Lutherans in Crisis, the question of identity in the American Republic by David A. Gustafson. What could you give us, Ben, on the background of this book? Well, I'll just tell you what I found doing a little bit of research about the author. David A. Gustafson uh, lived around uh, from 1942 to 2001. He had a PhD from the Graduate School of Union Institute and served for a long time as a parish pastor in the ELCA. And his book is published by a, a Lutheran publishing house, Fortress Press, published this book in 1993. So just five years after the rise and fall of American uh, Lutheran pietism. So this book analyzes the favorite topic, the oft-discussed issue of identity and heritage among American Lutherans in mid-19th century America. And that way, uh, he's it's no different from pretty much any other history book on American Lutheranism. There are a bunch of immigrants who are going to have to talk about um, identity and heritage in some way. Um, and that's something we've talked about a lot in this podcast, too. Um, now, he points out uh, kind of the obvious statement, but putting it out there that there are millions of Lutheran immigrants dumped into an American religious scene. There is obviously going to have an impact on the, on the pre-existing Lutheranism in America. Um, but he also takes time to identify what was uh, Lutheranism like before this mass wave of, of immigration. He discusses this tension between uh, social, uh, the social Americanization process that all these immigrant groups go through especially this religious aspect of mainline American Protestant culture and that question of confessional identity. So there's this tension between, um, you know, he's saying between mainline American Protestantism, which is what, as you become more American, you're probably going to be more like those American Protestants and that tension of holding on to your, your ethnic religious identity. Um, yeah. yeah but, oh, go ahead. That's fine if you want to. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good summary, a kind of overview of what the book's about. If you could, like, I don't know, summarize or really, what's the argument that he's making uh, specifically? Yeah, I'll let you answer that however you think is best. Yeah, I, I maybe I struggle. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's me. I struggled finding a very clear argument, and maybe you can pull it out for me if I didn't get it. Yeah. But he basically says that uh, there is tension between religious identity and Americanization, and he puts them into the two classical groups: the American Lutherans is what he calls them, and they basically said accommodate the American Protestant establishment. We're just going to yeah. fit into that. And the second was the confessional Lutherans that. Uh, they maintain that Lutheranism should preserve its liturgical, and this is a quote here, preserve its liturgical and doctrinal distinctiveness to preserve its Lutheran identity. So that's how he phrases it. Keep doctrine and worship style in order to keep the Lutheran identity as opposed to exchanging it for a Protestant uh, American identity. 
So basically the goal is we want to keep this Lutheran identity. That's the goal. So that means we're going to keep uh, liturgy and, and doctrine, which already right there, I would say is, is, a, is a weakness. I think they were more focused on let's keep the doctrine straight. And that ends up meaning we're going to stay Lutheran. Um, yeah. But I don't know if he just phrased that. No, I in agree. A clumsy way agree. or that's just already the, the issue we have in this book. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I just, I, it, I mean, this is a, well, we'll get into the differences between the two books later. I would agree that Gustafson does not have as straightforwardly stated of an argument as Keening. If, if I contrast it with Keening, I'd say that in contrast to him, he's saying, Gustafson is saying the controversy over in the 1850s, 1860s was all about these questions of doctrinal identity, of confessionalism, the, you know, that, that's what this was all about and nothing else. I don't know, what do you think about that? Yeah, um, he goes into it and, well, yeah, no, I'm kind of, maybe, should I just go through the summary of the book's content? Yeah, maybe, and then that, the, yeah. My other thoughts, my other yeah. thoughts come up there, but yeah, he does mention the the language and the the church government That's issues, true. and That's he says, true. but he basically says those weren't really a factor in this whole identity crisis thing. And I think that's yeah. where very easily that you could you could find loopholes uh, or holes in that line of thinking, saying language and and church government was not part of it either. Um, they weren't the major things for sure, but they definitely were. Um, so. Just the outline here. I might be talking for a while because I wrote down a lot of notes, but um, oh, he basically, okay, I'll just go right through. Um, so he asserts that although there was no national state church in America, there was a consensus am among many Protestant groups about the value of civil religion. Uh, basically, in America, religion stressed the value of good citizenship and harmonious society. That's summarizing, you might say oversimplifying it, but Generally speaking, that's what American uh, religion was about, at least in the public sphere. So he outlined American Protestantism. So he's saying, right, there's this process of Americanization that all these immigrant groups go through. So if you're going to become an American, this is what it needs to look like. So um, American Protestantism, although it's not a church or denomination, uh, falls along these lines. And many historians of just early American Republic are familiar with these, these themes. Uh, so basically, a typical conventional American Protestant was anti-Catholic, individualistic, even or maybe perhaps especially in regards to biblical interpretation and doctrine. Uh, that's something uh, Nathan Hatch brings out especially. Uh, the conventional American Protestant had or expected a personal conversion experience, and that experience was necessary for salvation something he mentions and that's often accomplished through a, a revival often done in a large group in a public setting uh, and finally the good american protestant viewed the sacraments of baptism and communion as purely symbolic so he said they, they basically had what we would understand as a zwinglian approach uh, rather than a lutheran or even a, a john calvin approach to the to the sacraments so all of these things would cause tension for any genuine confessional lutheran uh, even surprisingly, that um, anti-Catholicism, I don't think he gets too much into that, um, but you you might think, well, Lutherans call the Pope the Antichrist when they fit in with all these American Protestants, but um, those are different views of, of the papacy, too. The, the American Protestants had that kind of 
it's a worldwide power conspiracy. The Pope was going to take right. over America, the government of America, and, and Lutherans say, well, no, he's just blocking the means of grace by his his uh, dictates. Um, but also that American Lutheran view, or the Lutheran view of, of the sacraments seemed kind of too Catholic for, for people. So kind of on all four of those counts of what it meant to be an American Protestant, the idea of conversion, um, everything else was, was, in, was in conflict. So Gustafson uh, discusses this broader topic, which is the, the heart of his book, uh, at least in theory, uh, Americanization. And he summarized several theories, and I, I didn't really get into that too much, but um, he does point out, as I said, that language of issue, or that issue of language, uh, contrary to what I think the impression is today, at least in general consensus, he says it wasn't a major point of tension. So the fact that you have to change from German to English, he says that wasn't what the, the crisis was about. Um, that's what he's saying, at least. Yeah, and I, I kind of agree with that personally. Yeah. I And I've I've kind of changed my mind on that as I've studied American. I mean, it's not a non-issue, but I think it I think gets made gets made too big of an issue uh sometimes yeah uh, maybe i'm getting we should get maybe not go on that rabbit hole but well I'd, if you want well now that we start <laughs> now that we started i don't know i think for me 19th century language not really an issue early 20th century suddenly that is the the issue yeah um world war one yeah. basically makes it the issue um for the german lutherans but maybe not so much for the other ones yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right, um, and it's also a matter of like levels of immigration too. You know, I mean, there are high levels in the antebellum period, but uh, the 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 America the church, at least in the kind of general synod realm, is not. It's still there's still quite a mix when it comes to language. It's yeah. not. It's 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 not overwhelmingly German thanks to like just hundreds of thousands of immigrants forming in every year whereas like in the late 19th century i mean yeah especially in like midwestern church bodies you have i mean it's just an overwhelmingly immigrant group where yeah. it's kind of a mix in the early republican antebellum era but okay yeah. sorry well yeah well and you look at immigrant letters and they basically say move to cincinnati or milwaukee or st louis and you'll never have to learn english it's just, yeah. they're German, they're literally German cities. Um, so of In course- In the late 19th century. Yeah, yeah. Mid, mid to late, yeah, for 50 plus years. So so anyways, yeah, you're, yeah that's right. Both with East Coast, West Coast, General Synod, Confessional, Lutherans, they both have German and they both have English uh, language things. So he says it's not an issue. And now that we're analyzing it already, yeah, we I think we both can agree with that. Um, it's a different, later on though, I do think it is an Americanization. Um, symbol. Um, but he also says there's this adoption of the democratic structures, and by that we kind of mean like a church polity thing. Um, does the government basically run your congregation? Well, in Germany, in many instances, it wasn't always the same, but in many cases, yeah, there was a government ministry that, that ran everything. Um, wow, that's a change. You come to America, that might be difficult. And he says that wasn't really a point of crisis, at least not between the two main groups, not between the confessionals and yeah. the American Lutherans. Uh, basically, uh, Walther and, and Kurtz would probably agree almost 100% that 
on their church government thing, which ironically, uh, Walt, CFW Walther would not agree at all with other confessional Lutherans like the uh, Grabau and the Buffalo Synod. So with, yeah. perhaps within the confessional camp, there were debates, but not, it wasn't the, on the battlefield between these two groups. Yeah. Okay. And he doesn't really get into that. I'm just adding my own thoughts. Um, so back to the summary here, he says, Americanization, it's a thing, language and, and church government, not an issue. So he kind of begins his narrative of history, um, sets it before America is even a country. Um, he uses the familiar case of Henry Melchor Muhlenberg, and this is kind of his style. He'll take a, a lot of case studies and within a few pages or maybe just a paragraph or two, he'll tell you everything he thinks you need to know about this person or this event and uses that as his, his example. Um, and he says with Muhlenberg, he, uh, these Americans adopted that, that church government already as kind of an American Protestant. They fit in as far as the, the government was concerned. But Gustafson's is part of that camp in contrast to Koenig, who sees uh, Muhlenberg as a confessional Lutheran rather than a pietist activist. He puts him back in that camp. Um, and I don't think he supports it with too much, but he basically says that's the way he was. Uh, so Gustafson sees basically a more or less, maybe more of a moderate confessional American mm -hmm. Lutheranism that kind of slid into this generalized American Protestant culture. Um, and I might be oversimplifying him, but he seems to oversimplify himself. So I think that's, <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, so he next uh, identifies the guy we, we all know very well by now. Uh, S.S. Schmucker, he says, this guy, is the pre he has a whole chapter dedicated to him. He's the preeminent American Lutheran figure, just because he's in charge of the Gettysburg Lutheran Seminary, pretty much the dominant Lutheran seminary. There are a few others, but that's the seminary in America. Um, and on top of that, he writes a lot, and he loves to lecture every chance he gets to outside of the classroom. So just a, as a side note to an audience member, if you think, hi, I should probably know something about Samuel Simon Schmucker if I want to understand American Lutheranism, I, I would recommend at least this chapter out of this book as kind of a, a second level primer if uh, the Wikipedia article yeah. is, is not good enough for you. Um, otherwise, you got the full length Wentz biography, which is a whole nother book we can talk about. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, pretty old. It is dated, yes. Yeah, but anyway. Uh, yeah. All right. So he identifies uh, Schmucker. He goes through some of the other leaders like um, Benjamin Kurtz, which I thought he could have maybe given a little more prominence to, um, and a few others. Uh, all these guys, American-born, they seen themselves as uh, part of a Protestant American culture, almost more than being doctrinally aligned with a distinct Lutheran confession. They don't really see themselves as distinct uh they see themselves more as similar to the others. I think that's maybe the, the best way to summarize it. Yeah. And maybe putting it in my own words there. Um, they want to bring everything together too. So all these men promoted what Gustafson called, quote, a Lutheranism tailored to the American context. So he's basically saying there's this group that's already Americanized uh, of Lutherans sitting here by the early 1800s. So these guys are big promoters and leaders of the General Synod founded in 1820 as kind of a synod of synods and included most, if not all of those American Lutheran groups. All right, so once Gustafson establishes that American Lutheran camp, he traces what he calls, quote, a counter movement. 
and he identifies it as primarily originating with German-born immigrants. Uh, he does uh, give lip service to the, the Hinkle family, which are uh, American-born confessional Lutherans, but he basically says the kind of kind of fringe. Um, let's go to the immigrants. And so Gustafson gets major uh, plus points with me because he lists uh, Winnikin kind of prominently and, and early on in this process, which I think he did uh, ju justly. It was a good good decision to put him in there. Um, but he, then he, he talks a lot about the two uh, Krauths, especially Charles Porterfield Krauth. And he kind of sets up an, an interesting image of there being a theological battleground in Gettysburg where the Krauths were uh, a decade or so before the Civil War battle. So just there's a theological battle at Gettysburg before there's a, the Civil War battle there, which is a good image. All right, so he kind of sees as the, the major climax is the 1855 definite platform controversy. So this is a, a schmucker coup, you might say. Um, where Schmucker is stripping away a lot of Lutheran doctrines, uh, part of this accommodate, accommodating the American uh, Protestantism. Uh, and Schmucker didn't believe a lot of stuff Lutherans would say are, are, are doctrines. So he, he's basically saying this is what real American Lutherans believe. And they even propose disciplinary action for those who didn't agree. And if you're familiar with the General Synod, that's kind of shocking because they're supposed to be an advisory body and now they actually are putting discipline into that. Uh, so there's big pushback and he, he's, he's, he's outlining the history and that's kind of what I'm doing here too. Um, but then the Krauss found their seminary in Philadelphia in 1864 and he says the big uh, conclusion of this identity crisis was the general council in 1867 and that's kind of the end of, of his story at least. So that's the outline. Um, it's He's really just telling the, the history and I don't know if he's he's offering a lot of um, analyzing um, what's what's going on other than than telling the narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think his analyzing he doesn't work it into the narrative quite as much as Keening does. No, but in, the, in the conclusion of the uh, of his book, he certainly, you know, just as Keening tells you what what you what he thinks the lessons are here, Gustafson tells you what he thinks the lessons are here of of the uh, struggle in the 1850s and 1860s. Um, I don't know, do you have any thoughts on that? Like what Gustafson sees as the, the lessons of this history that he's just, he's just told. Yeah, what, what, why don't you go through what, what you've got there while I, I look up my notes again. Um, yeah, I, I mean, basically it's that, yeah, just like in the, I mean, this is putting words into his mouth a little bit, but just like in the 1850s, uh, in Lutheranism in the late 20th century when he's writing, there's this tension between trying to adapt Lutheranism to kind of the predominant American religious ethos and staying true to your confessional heritage. And he lists things like, I mean, he takes on Keening for a little bit. He takes on the church growth movement. Um, there's a couple others that he, uh, kind of movements that are occurring during his own time that he takes on. And he's basically saying, yeah, it's, again, to oversimplify the, the debates between the American Lutherans and confessionalists are just happening all over again in the 1980s uh, and I, early 1990s when I'm when I'm living. Uh, is that a fair characterization in your 
in your mind. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's basically saying we're going to have to constantly, always be on the lookout for this Americanization process. It's not just something that happened in the immigration period. Um, so yeah. yeah, keep your eyes open, be, be, be worldly focused um, yeah. as far as a lot of this is concerned. But then he kind of ma- makes his own, his own lines. He says, uh, two issues will not receive detailed attention here. They're proposals of some feminists concerning God language and the question of Episcopal secession. Um, yeah, and, and and he's yeah he goes into why why he personally thinks those things we shouldn't even yeah. talk about. But yeah, so he, he, yeah, it's definitely dated when he starts talking about the current issues right um, of, of the church. But right. those are kind of his examples. So, so um, did you get a chance to look at kind of how this book has been received? I mean, again, this is kind of an impressionistic thing. Um, but I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on how it's been received and analyzed since it's been written? I mean, this is, again, this is a book that's again almost thirty years old. Yeah, uh, obviously it's out there, uh, and I came across it all on my own. And no, no one put it in my hands and said you should read this. Um, but um, it, it's cited frequently, but almost I don't think so much for its arguments as much as oh, this is kind of like a a handy textbook that yeah. portrays some of the history. Um, other than, you know, like, yeah, no, I, I didn't, I, I looked for some reviews of the art of, of this book and I, I didn't find any, uh, at least in my there, research review, I did. Yeah. There was a review I remember coming across a few years ago, I think it was in the Lutheran quarterly, which kind of takes him the task a little bit on, he's telling this kind of, heroes and villains story. I mean, it's very clear whose side Gustafson's on in this, just like uh, in Keening's book, he's very much on the side of Schmucker and the Frankians. Um, Gustafson's very much on the side of Charles Porterfield Krauth and and the confessionalists. And I mean, yeah, you can ding them on that, but everyone, I mean, you know, when historians write, they're not unbiased, you know, they have the, yeah. their, the people that they're, that they, that they prefer more than others. So I don't think that's much of a, that's really a devastating critique. Um, so, yeah, I, but I'd say that, that Gustafson's, it's still pointed, for me, it's still kind of seen as kind of like the standard work on, I mean, it even says this on the back cover, the standard work of the complete account of there you go. the American Lutheran controversy, you know, from like the 1850s to the founding of the uh, General Council in 1867. So that's yeah. kind of how I see it. Well, and the, the, the review of a, of a name, uh, Carl Broughton, the kind of liberal Lutheran theologian, he basically says, there's a lesson here. Without this, we'd be in the dark. And he doesn't really say what do you think yeah. the lesson, lesson is other than I think, uh, yeah, to me, there, it lacked some clarity as far as a lot of that stuff was um, that he, that he, that he portrayed. Um, he does make some conclusions about just the formation of the ELCA, which was kind of a new topic. And maybe he was yeah. a bit prophetic. He's saying that you seem to be focused more on external organizational unity while avoiding controversy and that's maybe not a good idea. They're, they might they might bite you later, and th- they've certainly seen divisions since this book because of those yeah. controversies that weren't resolved. So, uh, 
What I mean, that's relevance. I, I yeah, guess. I should, maybe I maybe I shouldn't even say this because you know I don't know him at all. But I get the impression that he would have been, if he was living today, more in line with like the NALC or something like that. More on the, if you will, the conservative side of the ELC. But eh, I shouldn't even say that because I don't I don't know. Yeah. Um, but okay, so what do you? Do you like the book? <laughs> what do you th- what what strength what strengths do you do you see in in Gustafson's account here uh, after reading it? Yeah, so I guess maybe it, I think a lot of those questions are you have to tell someone like when you you started reading this book and and maybe why. So I, I read this book my last year uh, as a seminary student as kind of a okay we're getting like the lectures. Uh, in class about American Lutheran history, um, but I want to get a little more in depth. I want, I want something I could put my fingers on more than just uh, my notes or what I see in a in a PowerPoint presentation. So I ended up liking this book because it kind of gave me a much more concrete, hands-on outline of what I consider to be a pretty important part of of Lutheran history in America. So I liked it just because I think it identified some of the major issues and and it put it on paper. And, and gave some sources. So yeah, I, I like it. And I, and I think it's a good kind of a second level primer uh, for someone. It introduces you to major characters, major events, uh, and, and some major developments. So it's useful in that way. Any, uh, any other strengths or, or uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I well, now nah, I won't tip my hand yet. I'll wait till we. I, I, there, there's. I'll tell you what I like about. Yeah, I like yeah. the book for a lot of the same reasons as you. Um, it's kind of a starting point. A, I mean, when I was thinking about our conversation, I mean, it doesn't say anything too different from what previous treatments of this period have said before. Maybe if I'd make one thing that it does differently better than say Virgilius Firm's book, which I which I mentioned when we were talking about Paul Keating's book, kind of this book in the 1920s, that's kind of the first, you know, major study of the American Lutheranism controversy. Gustafson extends the what he's covering beyond the definite platform controversy. So I think a lot of people have this impression that, okay, 1855, the definite platform, this is the big controversy, you know, Schmucker and his allies put forward this American recension to the Augsburg Confession. And this is like the climax of the, of the controversy. Well, the general council doesn't split for another 12 years, you know, I mean, you know, a lot takes place in between then. And, and Gustafson at least makes an attempt to kind of carry the story after the definite platform. I still think he doesn't, well, we're getting into the weaknesses. I don't sure. think he doesn't. I don't think he tell. He's able to get into all the important developments and and maybe just doesn't see them himself. Um, but I, I appreciate that aspect of yeah. it because I, I my my own view is that the definite platform it's this convenient landmark in textbooks and overviews of American Lutheran history. Um, but because it's you know one of these episodes that everyone that studies this period learns, you know, in, in say a seminary church history course or reading, they don't, they think that that's kind of like the, 
that happens and that's kind of the end of the controversy or something like that. Yeah. Well, no, it's in some ways it's almost the beginning of the controversy. Yeah. So. Well, and this is kind of where the, for me, the strengths kind of border on, on the weakness side of it. I'm going to put it in the positive light um, for a book that's only really 175 pages. So kind of a, a smaller length wow. book, he introduces a lot. Um, so he, he mentions the Henkels, the Tennessee Synod, Klaus, Klaus Harms, 95 Theses, the Prussian Union. Uh, he mentions prominently uh, Winnikin's stand at the General Synod Convention, which I've never seen placed in any other history book to date. Um, I, I might include it in something. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> in a little more detail in that. But, yeah. you know, that's kind of where like, hey, and this really helped me with my personal research project. He was the only one who really identified this as a major turning point, not in 1855, but 1845 already. Um, And he's just like, this is, this isn't just one episode, one instance, but there's a lot of different confessional uh, backgrounds and they all kind of come together. Um, And it's, and, and, but he doesn't just follow the one narrative, like, oh, it was, you know, the Saxons in Missouri, they were the only confessional Lutherans on the continent, you know, which I don't think anyone really says that at all, but that's kind of the impression you get sometimes. Um, and he, he takes the task, as he said, um, Keening, but he also says, you know, Wentz in his American Lutheran history and E. Clifford Nelson in that uh, the Lutherans in North America book, they just don't do a lot of this stuff justice in their broad overviews. And it sounds yeah. more of just a, narr- a story of one senator, one person, or he's trying to weave it all together. So there, with that come certain strengths, but on, at the same time, that comes with some weaknesses too. So are you ready to... To rip it apart. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I don't. No, I'm. I'm. I want to be gentle always with these. Okay. No, I, I mean no. But well, what do you see as the as maybe some weaknesses to the book? So with the strengths, as he's including a lot, um, he tacks a lot of different bits of information together. Maybe the transitions. I mean, you could put a heading in there, and that's a transition. You know, um, yeah, and maybe that's just a minor editorial thing for me, but it's like, okay, not really transitioning or connecting thoughts so much. You're just throwing information at us, which my brain can handle that. A lot of, you know, anyone who's reading can draw their own connections, but he doesn't really tell you um, all the time. And, and basically, but when he, he adds a lot of information here uh, from different places. And whenever you do this with a history project, uh, it probably means unless you're doing a lot of work, there isn't a lot of primary research, but a lot of uh, reliance on secondary sources. So if a secondary source didn't get something right, well, you're gonna copy their mistakes. I did catch some factual errors in here in a few places. Um, It also means that that secondary source doesn't give you the answer you wanted it to give you. There's a temptation to kind of fudge an answer or perhaps leave a major question unanswered. So I think he's missing parts just because his sources didn't mention them. So he wasn't going to, you know, he, he, he's not getting a very broad perspective. He's just cherry picking um, certain things from these secondary sources. He does use primary sources, but somewhat sparingly um, in comparison yeah. to some other projects. He'll take a, you know, work by Schmucker. I mean, like he talks, he cites his elements of popular theology, yeah. for example, but then it's like, he, he spends like three pages on that single source, you know, instead yeah. of, you know what I mean? Or, or for example, yeah. Or he'll, uh, you know, he'll do things like he'll quote from 
Charles Porterfield Krauth, but instead of quoting the article directly, he quotes from the summary from the uh, the first biography published of Charles Port yeah. Porterfield Krauth, you know, which is kind of a shortened article. You know, I mean, yeah, it's it, on the flip side, you know, what I respect is that he's he's drawing from this is a narrative of the this controversy between the American Lutherans and the, you know, whatever we're calling the other side, confessional Lutherans, old Lutherans, whatever, that goes into the sources on on both sides and doesn't try and, you know, digs into the sources of not just the Schmucker and his allies, but also the, you know, yeah. Krauth and his allies. So I, I respect that uh, kind of balance, if you will. Yeah, it is balanced, and it's not like he doesn't say anything new. He he certainly does. And I, uh, my my little Winnikin episode is is that yeah. one example of that, where you don't see that drawn out so clearly in other histories. He is adding uh, information to our general historical knowledge that that is relevant. So, yeah. So, any other weaknesses that you see? I think I I summarized those already. Do do you, do you want to? I can, oh, I, I can, you are I, you are sitting on the edge of your seat, so please tell me what you think these weaknesses well, are. Okay, um, if I have my biggest critique would be the way he deploys the concept of Americanization. <sighs> There's this idea. I mean, if you're defining Americanization as uh, if you will, an outsider group trying to adapt and uh, change itself to better fit in with the, if you will, dominant group. Um, in this case, in the case of religion, you know, Lutherans trying to fit in with like the, I mean, what he's referring to is kind of the evangelical, yeah. what's sometimes called benevolent empire of, of antebellum America. So evangelicalism isn't the state religion of the United States, but it's the it's the predominant religious ethos. Yeah. Okay. But for me, there's, there's many ways to become American. Okay. I mean, and maybe I, I you've read the book by uh, Stephen Nolte, uh, Foreigners in Their Own Land. Yeah. Yeah, so it's talking about German, Pennsylvania Germans in the early Republic. Yeah, sure, they're outsiders, but they also think of themselves as totally American. Well, let's know? put this in terms that maybe people really have, have heard before. He, he's definitely part of the melt. I think he even used the phrase melting pot yeah. in there. So this idea yeah. of you, you become to America and you all mix together and you basically all look alike. Whereas I think it's still the current one. I've been out of school yeah. for a while, but the salad bowl theory is kind of that Nolte one, right? There's a lot of different things all mixed together. You don't have yeah. to look the same. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, for yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and like for Gustafson, Lutheranism succeeds when it resists the religious melting pot or the the you know the whatever the the metaphor you want to use. Um, look, and there's another really important book published actually around the same time as this, a, a book called, oh, what's, what's the name of it? Lawrence Moore is the author. It's something like Religious Outsiders in the Making of America. Don't quote me on that title. But he makes the point like on how all these different outsider groups, he looks at the Mormons, for example, uh, are it's quintessentially American to kind of make this outsider religious group, you know? Yeah. And so in many ways... I mean, my argument is like, uh, and, and actually, if you look at their writings at the time, these confessional Lutherans or the Lutherans associated with the, say, the Missouri Synod 
are making just as much of a claim to be truly American as these so-called American Lutherans. You know, they, they, it's just, it's American in a different sense. You, you know what I mean? So, and, and, and that relates to the other, I, I take issue with this notion that, that Gustafson puts forward that it's primarily immigrant immigrant Lutherans who are driving this confessional renaissance. I mean, he starts by talking, he says that, and then his first example, first people he turns to is the Hankels. <laughs> he's like, well, uh, you know, I guess the Hankels, you know, who are born in yeah. the United States. And, and uh, but I mean, Charles Porterfield Crouch, Charles Philip Crouch, Joseph yeah. Seiss, William Passafant, I can name person after person are, are American born, sometimes of the third or fourth generation that are yeah. coming to these ideas. They don't see them as an importation from Europe. They're, they're coming to these ideas on their own. Um, and, and I mean, look, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Even you can make the case that someone like Vinikin, your boy, yeah. I mean, he forms his, he forms his confessional identity after he comes in many ways to the United States. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that was part of the big research issue. Now that you got, you opened this can of worms was it used to, that the traditional narrative with Winnikin was, well, he was one of those mamby pamby awakened guys who wasn't really all that Lutheran until he went to Germany and then Wilhelm Lea sorted him out when it's yeah. very clear he was pretty yeah. nine, nine tenths <laughs> of the way onto confessionalism by the time he, he went back to Germany for that for that visit. So what's the catalyst? I think it, it's different on an individual le level. And so it's really hard to, to generalize what's going on in American Lutheranism because yeah, it, it's both, right? It, it, it happens but, on both sides of the Atlantic, yeah. but you're I'll right. You, it, well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. There is a, there is a confessional movement in Germany happening at this time. Uh, as well. Don't get me wrong. But I, I'll just give you another random example. I remember reading uh, for my dissertation some of the letters, I think it was of Eric Norelius, one of these important Swedish Lutherans in the founding of the Augustana Synod. And he has this line in there. I mean, he comes over uh, as kind of uh, more aligned, if you will, with the um, uh, American Lutheran kind of revivalist view. And there's a line in one of his letters I need to, I, I shouldn't quote it because I don't have it here, but something along the lines of the American situation has forced me back to the confessions. You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. it's like you encounter this kind of religious, you know, this, uh, if you will, the wild west of, of Protestantism, and it kind of forces some people to go back towards that confessional identity. So yeah. the point, I guess what I take issue with Gustafson and um, and even going back all the way to Virgilius Firm is this notion that it's this contest between, quote, American Lutheran and a European Lutheran. It's, it's a contest between two different interpretations of what Lutheranism should be in the United States. There, that, there's my overarching yeah. criticism. Yeah. yeah the, the question is, did the crisis of identity and Americanization cause that confessionalism or was the confessionalism bumping heads with Americanization, the crisis, right? Which the yeah. chicken or the egg kind of argument. Yeah. And it's that one of the, it's the both answer, you know, in yeah. a lot of, in a lot of cases. So, yeah, I think, I think the, the venial sin here is the oversimplification of yeah. things, but you got to have a, 
You gotta, gotta have, have some. You gotta have a thesis. Yeah. Gotta have an argument. Gotta have a conclusion. And he has. He has one. So, yeah. yeah. So do you? So just to kind of wrap up, Gustafson, you still think it's a book worth reading? Yeah, I, I think it is. I don't think. I don't think there are any glaring issues. I and 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 I think we're going to do the comparison here soon, which is which is helpful. The rise and fall of American. Lutheran pietism, I think it has that glaring issue of you're really missing something here by saying they're all like this or they're all like that. I don't think the, well, the argument is less clear. I also think the the faults are less grievous with American yeah. Americans in crisis. Would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, although, you know, yes and no. I okay. mean, I, it, it depends what you're trying to read for you read through Gustafson's book, you'd have no idea that there's like a civil war going on or, <laughs> you know, or you, you almost, I mean, he introduces yeah. the religious context of antebellum America pretty well. I mean, it's, it's dated because it was written 30 years ago. The, I mean, the historiography of American religion in the early United States has advanced so much. So you can't really fault him for that, but it's what, what he's not attentive to really is, how how does this fit into the political and social and cultural yeah. context of what's going and, and you can't do everything in a book don't get right. me wrong and that's not what he's trying to do um so this you know and again i'm kind of tipping my hand here to what i'm working on i i'm trying to integrate both things together in in my work is how do the political and cultural context text influence the theological context and vice versa yeah. right because i think you know we, you can't you can't disentangle the two because you're right it's not how people that's not how people live they don't just silo off into one world and silo off into another world yeah. yeah well let's just use an example right try to tell the life of a christian these past two years without mentioning theology okay or or, or, or religion but also without mentioning covid too, yeah right oh, exactly that, that's that's life right both yeah. of those things are how did your faith get you through this pandemic might be a, that would be a good yeah micro history for someone right and and we he doesn't really get into the second great awakening so much either yeah. which is just huge um so yeah. i mean he does but he but he also doesn't so 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 i mean i think that's the chief if we're getting into the differences and commonalities between the book i'd say the different the, the differences is keening is very attentive to the political and cultural context, but maybe almost minimizes the the real theological differences at times. Whereas it's almost the opposite case for Gustafson. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. So, so if you read them both, you'll you'll be just confused, yeah. but you'll have and a they fuller have picture. <laughs> yeah, and, and they have different heroes and villains. You know, that's the opposites, other, even. almost opposite heroes yeah. and villains. So it's a it's they're they're good to 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 read just so you can make those connections and those conclusions for yourself. Yeah. Do you see any commonalities between them? Other More, they're, they're both talking about the same period of history. Yeah, they're talking about the same period, which is maybe the most obvious one. I don't know. I think and another broad kind of answer is they attempt to answer some interesting, provocative, and, and relevant questions 
in American Lutheran historiography. And basically, if you want to understand the way things are today, where the major fault lines are in American Lutheranism, you got to know about the topics that they discuss and they analyze, right? You're not going to understand where we are today without having a handle on on these issues yeah. that, that they talk about. So um, that's where they have a commonality. I do have one commonality and I think it's, it's, it's another kind of fits into a critique of both books. They both very sparsely treat the Lutheran groups outside of the general synod. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say they don't mention Wells very much. So that, that's, that's a weakness. <laughs> well, I right? Mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah. I mean, the Wisconsin Synod is so tidy still, yeah. even, you know, even by, but well, they, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I think there's this divide in American Lutheran historiography. It's like, oh, we're treating the, and it's sometimes divided this way, the Eastern Lutherans now and the Midwestern Lutherans now. If you study the period, you realize that they're not as they're not operating in separate worlds. They're speaking no. to one another all the time. I mean, I mean, this comes out in the formation of the General Council, which is the which is the the kind of culminating moment in Gustafson's book. I mean, who does who does the organizers of the General Council invite? They invite The Missouri Synod, they're trying to bridge this, kind of bring together confessional Lutherans on, on it, in, in both the, if you will, the Eastern states and the Midwestern states. And, but I mean, you even see this with the figure of, of Vinnikin who you brought up. I mean, he's operating in kind of both worlds. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the, the goal, goals of American Lutheran historiography should be to not treat these Eastern Lutheranism and Midwestern Lutheranism as these totally siloed camps from one another, but try to integrate their stories into it, 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 together. So, yeah, well, that's the, the historian's issue or, or challenge, though, because then suddenly, well, wait a minute, I should probably be aware of both groups or all three groups, right? That means yeah. you just suddenly have to be do three times as much research. Well, that's right. And and so, and that's why I kind of give him a, a pass. Like I said, for a book that's only 175 pages long, yeah. I'll, you could treat that, yeah. that on a different level from Keening, who's a little bit longer, not the page yeah. numbers, everything, but he, he does treat a little more, well, 250, barely longer. Yeah. But, um, yeah. No, I think that, I mean, that's right. Yeah. You can't do everything in, in a book. And maybe what you said is, is, is exactly right. Maybe the best way, maybe we're not crazy with having both of these books, analyzing them at the same time. Maybe the best way to read these books is almost in tandem. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. Any final thoughts? Yeah. Well, I guess um, turning to our audience, I almost forget we're uh, doing this for hundreds of other pe uh, uh, of people right now, because it is kind of a one-on-one just... Yeah, sorry. So we have yeah. millions of, of, of subscribers by now. You should yeah. jump on the bandwagon. Um, uh, no, we, we uh, anyway, so this, this maybe sounds like a conversation between two guys just uh, discussing a book. Hopefully uh, you found it interesting as an audience member. Um, if you have any feedback on this kind of episode, would you like more of this, less of it? Um, 
This is a little less formal than our other discussions. So please uh, give us some feedback if you like these history of history book talks. And if you have any other books you would like us to discuss, you could send us a recommendation. So, all right. Thank you, Tim, for joining us today. My pleasure. We'll have more history in the future. <laughs>